I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Warning. The following episode contains subject matter and scenes that some viewers may find upsetting, disturbing, or unnerving. Please note, viewer discretion is advised at all times. Sit back and enjoy. Welcome to America's Most Wanted. It's one of the most successful shows in television history, catching America's most dangerous criminals. With more than 1,100 suspects already captured, Mostly thanks to viewer tips, we are back, and we need your help again. All night, we'll be releasing brand new information on fugitives on the run or in hiding. They may even be living a double life right next door to your home. Tonight, Cleveland, Ohio, two girls reported missing. Can you shed any light on this possible crime? America... We need your help. Welcome back to another I Can Murder a podcast. I'm Tom Norris, and I'm joined once again by Ben Carter. Back it again, Bella. There you go. There's a one. Just get the one out of the system, and the rest will be fine. What about the other twenty? Hello, and welcome back to I Could Murder a podcast. I'm Tom Norris, and I'm joined by Ben Carter. Ben, for people that are new to the audience, three words to sum the podcast up: um, sublime, arrogant, go on, grime, right. 
and true crime. That's that's two words. Dan, one word. Well, fantastic, brilliant. And I'm going to go with one word: adequate. <laughs> but yes, Ben, how are you today? Not too bad. Not too bad. Um, filming on a weeknight, which is new for us, a new experience. Feeling ready for it. Ready to you know dip the toe into the weeknight flow. So and see where we go. Is this rhyming thing going to be for no. the whole? You've, you've rhymed again then. Got the rhyming bug. <laughs> Adequate really tickled me. <laughs> and before we start, a massive thank you to all the new listeners, all the new viewers, all the new people that are following us on the socials. We really, really appreciate it. And those going that little extra mile and backing us on Patreon. You don't have to. No, you don't have to do that. If you do want to do that, though. But it means the world. Go over to uh, patreon.com forward slash could murder a pod. And over there, it's cost about a quid a week, and you get an extra Minnesota week. So, uh, mm. and what are we up to now? 40 episodes ish? Oh, I don't know, Ben. It's around about that, isn't it? It's around about the 40 mark. That's a lot of, that's a lot of, that's too many Minnesotas. I wouldn't go over there if I were you. And also, don't forget to give us a follow and at Could Murder a Pod on our socials. We've got Facebook, we've got Instagram, we've got Twitter. Mm -hmm. We've got the works. And as always, please feel free to leave a like or a comment. It really helps the channel uh, get out there. Please keep telling your friends and your family about us. Uh, we also really, really appreciate that. And um, Christmas is just around the corner, Tom. Why not head over to icmap.store and treat yourself or a loved one to a wonderful Christmas gift? Yeah, a few months early, but... <laughs> Prepared. Always prepare or prepare to fail. It's not That's not the phrase, but it's something similar to that. And if you're listening to us over on iTunes, why not leave us a review? So Ben, will you reveal to our audience what today's case is? So this case goes by a few different names. Uh, it's the Ariel Castro kidnappings, also known as the Cleveland kidnappings, also known as the Cleveland captives. And the monster of Cleveland. There you go. Many names. The reason we picked this case is uh, it was a name that came up a lot in our research for the Joseph Fritzl episode. And um, I, although in, in researching and prepping for this case, I heard that it was massive worldwide news when it happened. I don't remember hearing about it at the time. I don't either. I remember actually seeing the, the gentleman who uh, was at, toward the end of the case, um, who helped resolve the case. I remember him yes. being in the news, yeah. but that's pretty much all I remember. Wrote a book. Sorry. So yeah, so, so Ariel Castro, this case came up massively when we were, were prepping for our Joseph Fritzl episode. And in, in looking into this case even more, this is up there with... I think as well, like, it's even just... You know how the set, I mean, we've argued about this before, but sometimes when you look at someone, you can kind of see there's something that, like Fritzl had a very distinctive kind of look to him. Mm. Castro could be, you know, be a mailman or your postman over here. Um, or he could be just, yeah, he's just your kind of average looking guy, which yeah. makes it even more terrifying. And again, it's not as elaborate. We'll go on to describe how he did what he did and, and for how long he did what he did. But it wasn't like this elaborate underground life that he was living like Fritz. So it was very kind of casual in comparison. And I think that's just the fact. And even then, and we'll go on to it, it seemed to just happen. People were at the wrong place at the wrong time. And an unfortunate set of circumstances led to what we're going to talk about today. And yeah, this is, this is rough, this case. I think um, the phrase hidden in plain sight again very much mm. um, comes into play with this. Quite literally. That's why I said it. But anyway, Ben, let's go through Ariel Castro's childhood and kind of see you know, how we ended up in the situation he got himself into. Full name is Ariel Castro, isn't it? He, that, that looks like it should have a middle name, but he doesn't. I don't know what that means. <laughs> it was someone's name looks like they should have a middle name. Yeah, it should. Like, Ariel. Ariel is not his name. Ariel. <laughs> What's your middle name again? I haven't got one. 
I always thought that your name looked like it should have done there. <laughs> this is going to make it in. So Ariel Castro was born on July 10th, 1960, in a small village called Dewey, which is in Yauco, Puerto Rico. He had a father called Pedro Castro, and he had a mother called Lillian. Pedro was the biggest landowner uh, in that locality within Puerto Rico. So this family, Tom. Yep. What, what have you got for us? Yeah, as you said, he was the third child. There's nine siblings in total, both half and full um, brothers and sisters. So when um, Errol was two um, in 1962, his parents would split up mm-hmm. um, because his mother found out basically his dad was married to another woman and had four other children. So he wasn't growing up in the household with a kind of strong male role model. You know, his, his dad, um, you know, essentially womanizing and have, living a secret life. Unfortunately for Ariel, his, his mother wasn't um, very loving. Yeah, according to Castro, she was abusive and would insult him and hit him daily with a belt, a stick, or her open hand. Yeah, he'd apparently go on to, he would sometimes even pray for her to die. So that yeah. kind of just shows the distaste he had towards her and how he was being treated. Um, it's also reported that when Castro was five years old, he would he was sexually assaulted by a nine-year-old boy nicknamed Pucho. Like we said in other cases, he'd grown up with this kind of already very sexualized um, yeah. environment at a young age, which, which led him to have a compulsion to masturbate from a very young age and he was very sexualized from a very young age yeah so not a stable household at all no uh, no kind of adult role models he's been sexually abused at a very young age things do take a slight turn in the positive direction there when his family make the decision to uh, move to america castro together with his mother and three of his full siblings settled in redding pennsylvania where they would then move on to relocate to cleveland ohio uh, and this is where castro's father was and uh, also the remainder of his full and half siblings i think it was there was a fairly thriving uh, puerto rican community there at the time and again this is where uh, the castro family uh, are held in a very high regard so they're they're fairly well off financially they've moved to an area where they can help other fellow puerto ricans relocate and help them into employment help them you know house them potentially um so yeah the, the family are held in in really high regard and, and so is ariel at this point so as we said castro's relationship with his mother was very difficult and i think his uncle ceci kind of realized that and he actually gave him a guitar to help him kind of escape. Castro got very obsessed with this and he got really into playing guitar and eventually would actually lead on to being a professional bass player. Yeah, the way it was described in uh, in most of the documentaries I watched is that he instantly took to the guitar and overnight professional. I thought it was a lot harder than that. Yeah, I, I don't think it was like that, but... Transitions and... Yeah, it'd be weird if they did documentaries in real time. <laughs> So he got very involved in the kind of um, Cuban and salsa kind of scene in bands, playing bass in those bands. He, apparently, he was quite arrogant, though, and he didn't have the best relationship with his band members. He would turn yeah. up late, and he would kind of be, yeah, he had a bit of love for himself. Yeah, so he ba- played bass guitar. He was uh, in, in the top three of all bass guitarists in the Cleveland general Cleveland area. Where did you get these stats from, Ben? Yeah, quite a claim. Um, but apparently, after performing... Um, he would often he'd keep his personal life very private compared to the rest of the band members. But as soon as they finished performing, and either the next band were on, so they weren't a headline act, I imagine. It's always headline act was always overrated. Always want to be the support act. Though. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, the opening act also. No, that's the worst one because people aren't in yet. But second get one, them is, in. get bums on the seats. I don't want to be down seated venues. You want people dancing. You want people moving. Yeah. Well. Exactly that. Castro, as soon as they finished, started uh, mingling uh, on the dance floor and he would approach multiple women in a very short space of time wanting to kind of dance with them. No one would take him up, but despite multiple rejections within a short period of time, he would continue to go back to the dance floor. Very, very eerie. 
To go back to his mother, she never remarried, despite his father having that kind of secret second family. She very much, her focus was on raising the family, making sure they were all, um, you know, cared for, financially okay, and and, and received a good education. And actually, uh, this would be to Castro's benefit because he would graduate from Cleveland's Lincoln West High School in 1979. But he would continue to to play local bars. He was he wanted to pursue a life of a life on the road, slapping that bass. But um, so Castro would go on to meet his first real girlfriend, Grimilda Figueroa, when his family moved into a house across the street from hers in the nineteen eighties. Castro, she was quite young at the time, mm. um, so it was a bit. Yeah, Castro would go on to take her virginity, and Figueroa's mother demanded that she move in with Castro to avoid the kind of sh- family shame. And the couple would go on to actually have four children together. So they would live between uh, both sets of parents, and at this time, um, Castro was, you know, very much keeping up the appearances of the good, uh, the good partner, very loving, very um, charismatic. Um, but things would take a slight turn when Figueroa um, gave birth to their first child in 1981. Castro's behaviour changed drastically at this point and he became very controlling and abusive. He would often force her to stay at home and he basically controlled her life from that point onwards. He would pick what TV shows she could watch, where she could go, who she could see. He'd make her wear long dresses to avoid men looking at her in the street. The controlling behaviour reminds me of a case we did before of Beverly Allett where she used to mark the chalk marks yeah. on the car to Couldn't see if, if, if um, her partner would like basically drive off and use the car. Whereas this... Yeah, as Ben said, he would control the TV shows she watched. And the way he would yeah. do this, he'd feel the back of the TV to see if it was warm, if it'd been out, then look at the TV guide and he would basically decide that if she'd been watching anything that he didn't want her to watch. It's like, ne- it was next level control. And it, it, it was controlling, being manipulative, but also, yeah, it did become physical. He would beat Figueroa, break her nose, ribs and arms. He hit her so hard one time, it actually caused a blood clot in her brain, which resulted in an inoperable tumour. And he, yeah, he also threw her down the stairs, cracking her skull. So it, it, it's, yeah, it was a horrible relationship. He, he this anger kind of, it, had, it hadn't really been evident in his behaviour no. really beforehand. Mm. Um, and yeah, just suddenly some, something seemed to snap in him. And yeah, he just turned into this monster. Yeah, and in, in the in the prep for this this episode, there were lots of neighbours interviewed, and they would they would all come, you know, be completely open and honest, saying, you know, there was a lot of um, a lot of domestic abuse, a lot of violence in the household, a lot of shouting and screaming. But in that particular culture, in that particular community, it was very much you you keep your business to yourself, and that's why again, um, you know, nobody ever intervened, and, and people kind of kept themselves to themselves. So Figueroa actually became pregnant for a fifth time and Castro didn't want to have another child and so he tried to induce a miscarriage by punching her and kicking her in the belly. It just it just, sh- yeah, it just shows how much of a monster he actually was. In 1993, Castro was arrested for domestic violence but was not indicted by a grand jury. Um, but in 1996, Figueroa did leave the home along with their four children with police assisting in the move. So the police obviously yeah. were aware something was, you know, was up there and they were they enough for them to actually assist with the move which sounds quite quite drastic in that in that regard but um i read as well the reason he wasn't indicted was because shortly before he was detained and taken away he'd managed to get up close to figueroa and said you say anything i'll kill you and um she would then retract various testimonies yeah apparently even afterwards he continued to harass and threaten her still I guess it's losing that control he once had on her he didn't like that at all so figueroa attempted afterwards to get a restraining order on castro due to the injuries and him repeatedly abducting their daughters Which, um and the court itself yeah that in itself, that in sentence in itself is, is terrifying but the courts granted this but was dismissed after a few months red flags like we like to say already here he's already shown a lot of traits there abductions 
domestic abuse manipulation yeah conditioning yeah so just prior to this uh, period of time uh, in 1992 castro did buy a house which is uh, on the now infamous 2207 seymour avenue he initially lived there with his wife and four children however he's now in the house completely alone and at the time of the purchase it had an unfinished basement which never an appealing term unfinished basement i mean it's so it always ends bad I think a lot of people buy properties with unfinished basements and don't end up doing these kind of things. Mm. Now alone in his house, uh, Castro begins uh, some interesting renovation projects. So first of all, he installs a heavy trap door leading to the basement. He also uh, adds padlocks to every door in the house and also adds curtains and layers of bricks to soundproof uh, certain rooms of the house. Now, potentially under the guise of he has has band members over, he plays a lot of loud music, he's got band practice going on. But once this was all finished, he basically forbid anyone else entering other rooms other than on the first floor of his house, um, apart from himself. And he would just claim that it was either, you know, unkempt and, and... Uh, messy areas of the house that he just didn't want people to to go into. So later, Castro would also tint all of the windows in his house. Um, And even when the family were with him and he had started various bits of of this renovation process, he would also lock certain rooms in the house when he would go out and play gigs. Yeah, he he, he wouldn't let them, he would control, it wasn't just controlling Figueroa, controlling the whole family, would leave them up to four days when he's doing gigs. Where's he got that from? I don't know, but then you think from this, okay, so this kind of behaviour... We mentioned there, you know, him being taken to court for domestic abuse. But apparently he is very charming in the community to other people. He lands a job as a school bus driver. Hmm. Which immediately you think that is not a good mix. I don't know if he picked this job, you know, to be known more in the community and maybe be trusted and seen. Oh, no, it's the local bus driver, kind of another charm to him. You know, he's playing lots of gigs, he's successful. And while he's doing this kind of thing. In his application, he wrote, I enjoy working with children. I have a good driving record. I speak English and Spanish. I plan to drive a bus and working with young people. He must have been fairly good at it because he he held that job for 22 years. Yeah, and but yeah, there's some things well, we'll, some, we'll get into which... Not a completely clean record. Yeah, you'd be very surprised as to how he managed to keep his job. He was earning $18.91 per hour. Yeah, which at the time... Which if you translate it now, Ben, is, is £3 million pounds a day. There you go. Which is, oh... Not bad going for a bus driver Castro um, at the time. It's more than Miss Frizz was getting... Do you remember that show? No. The Magic School Bus. After his family had, had left the household, obviously during the day he's he's um, riding the bus. <laughs> during the <laughs> bus driver by day, bass player by night. Well, yeah, and then BDSM addict behind closed doors. Later on at night. Yeah. So he's got you've got you've got your day. Yep. You've got your night, and then you've got late night. So Ben's going to go through now some of the incidents that happened with um, Castor on the bus and how we are completely amazed that he didn't lose his job. Multiple instances of uh, making illegal U-turns with a full bus full of children. He also used his bus to go grocery shopping, often leaving children locked in the bus. Doing a big shop, probably. The big shop. <laughs> oh. Yes, he also left a child on the bus while he went for lunch, and he also left the bus unattended while he the, took a nap at home. On, why is the kid on the bus when he's having lunch? And yeah. why, why is the kid on the bus when he's having a nap at home? Thinking Ralph Wiggum. A lot of issues uh, 
for Ariel Castro as a bus driver. Uh, so eventually, 22 years into the role, he was fired for bad judgment, but uh, which kind of included a rap sheet of, of everything we've just mentioned. So enough about buses. We're going to go into the timeline now of the case and see when the monster of Cleveland really came through. So we start with Michelle Knight. There's no happiness in this story for this this person. It's it's a really really tough time. As a child, uh, she was uh, she was bullied and teased at school because uh, she couldn't wash at home, and she wore often wore hand me downs. So she came from a very poor. She actually grown up and living in the car at the time, so yeah, she wasn't able to wash, and she missed a lot of school. So she was she was a bit behind on kind of in, in class. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, she had a, the nickname of Shorty, uh, so she was I believe four foot seven, but she had a very very tough upbringing. So she would be bullied and teased at school. School, but she was also um, assaulted many times at school. She would go on to be sexually abused and raped uh, by a male family member. So she left home as a teenager and actually moved into a bin underneath an overpass wherein she befriended uh, two drug dealers, one called Sniper and one called Roderick. And these were the first people that actually seemed to care genuinely um, about Michelle. However, uh, in return for this, it wasn't quite all a positive experience. They did use Michelle as a drug runner in return for housing her, feeding her and clothing her. However, that was short-lived and eventually she became pregnant and uh, as a result moved back in with uh, with her mother. Yeah, so when she was pregnant, she claimed it was with a boyfriend, but it has been reported it could possibly be where she was actually gang raped, it was, which is, you know, it's, it's just horrible. But uh, she fell pregnant with her son, Joey, and she was living with her mum and her mum's boyfriend at the time. Once when Michelle left the house, she left left Joe with her mum, and her mum would then go on to actually leave her son with her boyfriend, yeah. and her boyfriend actually twisted um, Joey, who was a toddler at the time's leg, and actually broke his broke his leg. They went to the hospital, obviously with Joey. Um, Michelle wasn't completely completely honest about exactly how it happened, said yeah. he, so said he had a had a fall, but the truth did come out, and it, you know it came out that the the boyfriend did actually break the toddler's leg. And because of this, Joey was put into foster care, and um, Michelle, you know, was very keen to get to get her son back. So, you know, she loved the bits, and you know, she wanted to give a better childhood to, to her son than she had. So that's kind of the situation she was in when we fall to this day. Yeah, and this is a really we talked about un- unfortunate set of circumstances. So imagine, because at this point we don't know Castro has anything planned or that he's built any kind of home, you know, uh, prison, and it's just by chance that these two paths kind of encounter one another which yeah. is just it's just absolutely hideous so on the 22nd of august 2002 21 year old michelle knight was at her cousin's house and was scheduled to appear in court that afternoon for her four-year-old son joey's custody case and on the way to court knight stopped in a convenience store to ask for directions so basically she was running late she wasn't able to drive so she was really panicked if she didn't make this particular appointment that she would lose custody so a highly stressful situation so she enters the store to ask ask for location uh, location advice to ask for directions uh is it location advice can i get some lower location advice please <laughs> fucking idiot ben uh, start from the beginning <laughs> on overhearing uh the conversation knight was offered a ride by Ariel Castro and since she recognized Castro through knowing his eldest daughter Emily she trusted him and got into his car so what the odds here well she would have been like she wouldn't believe her luck she saw him there she needs to get somewhere he's a bus driver he knows the places even though it's a U-turn everywhere he knows where he's going apparently so he's gonna like this is in her eyes the knight in shining armor right there Absolutely. Trusting Castro, um, she got into his car and Castro did a huge spin in the car park when she got into the car, which Knight noted was a bit odd, but excused it when Castro said, my kids love it when I do that. 
So I imagine that... And even if she wanted to get out, she couldn't, as there was no door handle. You know, he's got her in the car. She's in a rush, clearly, to attend this this appointment. Immediately gets in the car, he pulls a huge spin to apparently try and make her, you know, make her laugh because his kids love it. She's freaking out. She tries to get out, and there's no door handle on the passenger side. There's also a little poster on on the side of the actual car, which says he's selling puppies. And Michelle would go on to, you know, say to him, kind of making kind of polite small talk, you know, oh, how Joey loves puppies. And then Castro kind of saw, oh, maybe, you know, come to my house and we can, I can actually show you a puppy and he can yeah. give you one for Joey when, once you get, get him back. And then Michelle's obviously thinking, oh, that's amazing. That's great. And that kind of made her feel like it wasn't strange they're going by, a, by the house. And the, the thing that blows my mind about all of this is that all of this is happening through complete chance. I think as well, like we said, he's, he looks a very unassuming guy. So, yeah. And you probably would know him from being the local bus driver. He's quite well known around the neighbourhood for playing in the bands. And his daughters seem to be very popular and have a lot of friends around the area as well. Yeah, he looked like he, he would be selling puppies. I don't know what that means. Just, you know, non-assuming. So yeah, as Tom said, he's promised her a free puppy uh, for a son, uh, so she can't believe her luck, um, and they head back to Castro's home with the promise of seeing this puppy. Once inside the house, Knight was led upstairs and told that the puppies were sleeping. When they reached the second floor of the house, Castro took Knight into a room, locking the door behind him. Castro then restrained her with extension cords, raped her, and left her there for three days without food. He left her gagged with a dirty sock in her mouth. And at this point, Michelle Knight, completely unaware that that is, that is the start of her captivity in, in the Castro household. So Knight's family did report her missing, but um, people assumed that she was so dis- distraught over losing her son's custody battle that she actually ran away on her own. I mean, previously her run, running away from the family home before, it maybe, you know, it wouldn't be too out of question to kind of think that would be a possibility. Yeah. Because she was um, 21, it wasn't taken as seriously. She was, you know, she was an adult. It wasn't as alarming as, as, as a child going missing. So people believe that the police weren't as interested in the case because she was older. And some people suspect Castro mistook her as being a lot younger because of her height, could be an under five foot. And talking about the manipulation thing, Castro apparently said to Michelle that she wasn't his first victim. He captured a girl before, but said, I'm not going to tell you if she made it out alive. Yeah, so high contrast in terms of the family, you know, putting pressure on the police to look for for uh, Michelle compared to what we're going to go on to discuss with the, the following two captives. So on the 21st of April 2003, so around eight months later, Amanda Berry, a high school student who grew up in the Cleveland area, was leaving her part-time job at Burger King. She had almost booked the day off as it was the day before her 17th birthday, but she decided to go in and work the shift. Berry called her sister at around 8pm that evening saying that she was getting a ride home. It turns out she had accepted a ride from Castro as she went to middle school with one of his younger daughters, Angie. Yeah, so basically Castro had driven past with Angie in the car and then uh, apparently he had spotted the fact that Amanda kind of recognised her and gave a bit of a smile when she drove past. So once he had dropped off his daughter, he turned around and he went, we went back to go and go see her. Castro picked her up, started driving her back. Then he, he drove past her house, which Angie kind of was asking, her, asking him why he was going past. And he was saying, oh, no, you know, come home and see my daughter, Angie. Uh, you know, she would love to kind of see you. So once he got Amanda inside, he began to show her around the house. And she walked past the doorway. And apparently she saw through the door Michelle Knight sleeping through, through the hole in the door. And she asked her, you know, who, who's that? And Castro apparently responded saying it's a roommate. Eventually, he forced her into a room and told her to pull down her pants. After assaulting her, he took her into the basement and tied her hands and feet with tape and put a belt over the tape on her feet. He also put a helmet, on, like a motorcycle helmet, on her, and that's yeah. essentially I think just to kind of muffle up the screams. And he said, if, you know, if she if she kind of complied with everything, he would take her home. 
but sadly that wasn't the case. Berry's disappearance was reported immediately by her family. Now, they had had some arguments in the days building up to her abduction. You know, police initially did consider her a runaway. Um, However, a week later, her family received a call from Amanda's phone from an unknown male stating... I have Mandy, she's fine and will be coming home in a couple of days. And the kind of more convincing element of that is the fact that Amanda was referred to as Mandy by only her close friends. With this as well, it's kind of conflicting because because it was her birthday coming up. She like apparently had lots of presents at home and she was very excited about it. She also had some money that she, she'd been given that she kind of stored away in, in one of her cupboards for, for her birthday. So it didn't really make sense. She wouldn't run away without taking the money. Why wouldn't she, you know, wait until she received her 17th birthday presents? It all kind of didn't add up and the family very much didn't think she she had run away. Yeah, especially and, with some random, strange-sounding male. Exactly, yeah. And like, as Ben said, with the phone call, the FBI were able to narrow down the phone's location to a 30 to 40 block area, but were unable to find Barry. And I find this so disturbing, as Castro would actually listen to the voicemails from the family pleading for her to come home who kind of gladly listen to them and just kind of enjoy them. He would even go as far as deleting the messages in order to get new messages of people pleading for her to come back. Yeah. He's getting sick enjoyment out of that. He's vetting these voicemails, but he would then go on to kind of torture Amanda by only playing her segments of, of voicemails from her loved ones and relatives. And it would always be the point when she could just start to hear her mother's voice that he would immediately either turn the phone off or take the phone away from her, which is just... It's just evil, yeah. So in January 2004, in response to an investigation by Child and Family Services after Castro had intentionally or inadvertently left a child on a school bus, police attended Castro's home at 2207 Seymour Avenue, however were unable to make any contact with anyone inside the house. He was not charged over this and they did not discover the two women that had been kidnapped. Because, you know, he said things before, you know, make any noise, you know, I'll kill you. I think, you know, they couldn't really hear a lot of things as well because he'd play like radios in rooms or play TVs in rooms so they couldn't really hear what was going on. He was still doing things like, yeah, leaving a kid in the school bus. He was doing these things which you wouldn't do if you didn't want people, you want to be flying under the radar. You don't want to draw any attention to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. It was a stupid question I had, first of all, and that was, if you've already got one captive, why would you then go and take another? And obviously, from Castro's perspective, it's hideous because he had then felt that Michelle wasn't really his type, but also he'd had kind of had his way with her, and, and he, he was then looking for, apparently he had a fascination for blondes, which Amanda Berry was. Michelle, at this point, becomes kind of secondary to, to his second captive, and it, it basically he has his way with them, he has his fun with them, and beats them. Anytime he would even leave the house he would chain them to a pole or chain them to the wall or to the ceiling and then put gaffer tape over their over their mouth so even if someone was to pass the house there's nothing they, yeah. could, they could do all the windows were tinted all the rooms were padlocked and he had no family or friends around the house so even if if people would visit he would you know keep, keep certain elements of the house completely cordoned off yeah definitely i mean his neighbors thought he was a bachelor but the, the other thing to kind of mention here was he did actually have a long-term girlfriend during this stage he was going out with a woman called Lillian, the same name as his mother. But apparently, with her, who he, he was very charming, he he didn't he wasn't being violent with her whatsoever. Some people speculate maybe you know they're already in there with the, the same sharing the same name as his mother. But he was apparently very charming. Her family loved him. Um, they thought because you know he, he was driving one of the nicest cars in the neighborhood. He was he was in in a band. He was well known, and he was like making good money. He worked with children. It's like he was ticking all the boxes for her. She was very happy in that relationship. It was completely unbeknown to her the fact that he was you know obviously living this double life. Again, you don't know what happens behind closed doors. This is that to the absolute extent behind padlock doors. Well. 
So the 2nd of April 2004, 14-year-old Georgina de Jesus, a 7th grader, was walking home from Wilbur Wright Middle School in Cleveland with Arlene, who was Castro's youngest daughter. The two were planning a sleepover at Arlene's house. However, Figueroa, who's Castro's ex-wife, said no to this and that the pair were to then go their separate ways. Georgina had decided to walk home rather than take the bus as her mother had requested and save the $1.25 for sweets. On the 40-block walk home, she encountered Castro, who asked her if she knew where his daughter Arlene was as she had just seen Arlene. So basically, as as Georgina had just seen Arlene, she was more than happy to uh, show Castro where his daughter went. Castro then offers her a ride home, which she accepts. He drives De Jesus back to his house, at which point De Jesus questions why he is going in the opposite direction to her house. Castro then asks for her help taking a speaker into the house and also stated that he believed his daughter would be home by now and that she would want to see him. So that's the really horrible part. So he obviously gets her a point where he's saying you know i'm really worried about my daughter can you help me find her get in the car there's no way she's going to refuse is she and Um, she trusts obviously it's it's her best friend it's her dad it's her dad she trusts him and yeah she saw where she went she thought she could could help him and then the weird thing is he keeps going between the story of to find my daughter but also to help me put the speaker in the house keeps kind of going to and from those two stories which is a bit odd anyway so castro asks her for help taking a speaker into the house claiming that you know what my daughter's probably already home and and you want to see her castro then started to touch her and this is a 14 year old girl de jesus tries to stop him and he leads her to what she thought was an exit castro manages however to trap her in his basement by telling her that the door was the way out so basically he said yeah you can leave but you you're not leaving the way you came in you have to leave through this way um, and he always kept certain doors locked so it was believable that maybe there was a, a back door or a different way of exit in the house once he gets her in the basement he traps her there and then grabs her and chains her up castro wouldn't start raping de jesus until a month after her kidnapping so he's progressively picked younger targets yeah. he's used his daughters in almost well in every attempt to get these three girls so he was very opportunistic with this he, he i don't think he, the daughter was obviously i didn't know anything about this they, they weren't implicit in any of this but he was able to kind of use them in order to pick you know keep, they already have their trust yeah and yeah it, it's, it's hot i mean like, i imagine the guilt the daughters must have for being you know kind of involved without without if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Knowing about yeah, it. Definitely. So because no one witnessed the abduction, the Amber Alert was not used. And the father spoke out about this, saying the Amber Alert should always be used for a missing child, whether it's an abduction or a runaway. A child needs to be found. We need to change this law. So at the start of their imprisonment, all three girls were chained up in the basement. Eventually, they were all allowed to go upstairs. However, were kept chained by the waist at all times and padlocked in rooms of the second floor with a hole in each door to spy on them. They weren't in rooms really together, mingling. They could kind of talk through the, the walls with one another a little bit. As you mentioned before, Castro would kind of manipulate the girls and kind of show favoritism to some and not to the others during winters he would keep them in the cold basement during summers would keep them in the hot attic he was so evil with with his actions he didn't want them to form any kind of bond Mm. against him so he would alternate who his favorite was and who would then get the worst of his beatings and more often than not the one that that got the worst of it was michelle yeah michelle said apparently she thinks that the reason she got the worst of it is because she he couldn't break her yeah in terms of like she'd been through this before she says she she's very strong on this and she she wasn't wasn't letting him break her so for their conditions they had to use a bin for their toilet but Castro would buy them snacks and offer to buy them colouring books, which is quite odd for their age. Even they're 14, you know, that's an odd thing to be buying. He even bought um, one of them a journal and she recorded in secret how many times she actually had been raped, which was useful evidence later on. But when he was acting nice, he would always come with a price. You know, if he'd offered them a weekly shower, they'd only get a shower if it was with him as well. Yeah, yeah. But the girls apparently, you know, they learned how to make themselves numb to this abuse and yeah, he he basically would play favourites and just kind of make them resent one another and give one more clothes than the others, one more food than the other. It's, yeah, yeah, systematically trying to break their uh, their spirit spirit. Yeah, absolutely. And the the horrible thing about De Jesus as well is that's his youngest daughter's best friend. Yeah. She lives in the same neighbourhood. Because they'd pinpointed a certain area, Castro was involved in setting up crime scene tape. Yeah, it, yeah he'd get involved with vigils, can try and offer help with and get close to the family, offering his, his assistance. The father of De Jesus as well would have beers in his garden, so he'd literally be within you know the same premises that his daughter was was chained up. Yeah, it's just horrible to think about. I mean, it's, it really does seem like he liked to play with fire with that kind of thing. So yeah, still in April 2004, the FBI led a large-scale search for De Jesus which Castro apparently attended, as well as featuring her case on America's Most Wanted. Neither venture amounted to any leads, and Castro also attended a, a number of uh, vigils, like I said, for the girls, along with their grieving families. Yeah, apparently he would also write songs for them and play music out loud. Just the kind of the America's Most Wanted thing, yeah, he got the girls to watch that together with him, which, you know, just showing his kind of handiwork there. He'd even tease um, Michelle because... 
because Michelle was thought as, as, a, as a runaway because of her age, it wasn't being made as, as a bigger case than the, the other girls and saying, like, no one wants to find you and yeah. no one's looking for you. It's, it's just, yeah, very manipulative. Other things Castro would do, and this is absolutely hideous as well, he would, make, he would force the girls to celebrate the anniversaries of their abduction Ugh. by bringing them cake and physically forcing them to celebrate it. He would also periodically bring in their uh, missing persons uh, posters as well and tease them with that as well, saying they're never going to find Yeah, you. one of the girls, I remember, she decorated hers and she kept it because she wanted to give it to her mum once she was free. Well, that's your, your, that's your motivation for getting mm. out of there, I guess. So in November 2004, in the Montel Williams show, Sylvia Brown, a well-known psychic, tells Amanda Berry's mother that her daughter is dead, saying she's not alive, honey and is in the water. I think she pinned it down to her having the opinion that Amanda was not the type of girl not to call you. The horrible thing is as well, Amanda Berry's mother would die seven years later uh, after a battle with cancer. So she died thinking that her daughter was dead because of a psychic. So on the 2nd of March 2006, Amanda Berry's mother, Luana Miller, passes away at the age of 43. She was hospitalised with pancreatitis and other ailments. However, the cause of death was officially ruled as heart failure, which the family attributes to the stress of losing her daughter. And obviously now a psychic has got it into her head that her daughter was absolutely yeah no longer with them she had spent the last three years of her life searching for amanda and a city councillor donna brady who had spent time with the family throughout their search for amanda said luana miller literally died of a broken heart that's the horrible thing she's gone on to uh, the montel williams show to generate you know publicity for the fact that her daughter's still missing the de jesus family and the berry family are, are actively you know fighting to find their daughters they believe that they're both still alive and they have a psychic on national television just say you know she's not alive honey yeah and as i mentioned with um kind of castro poking fun at night at one stage you know he he actually brought her outside and was making her dig her own grave in the backyard so the 22nd of september 2006 a tip is received in relation to gina de jesus disappearance and two men one was a registered sex offender the tip included a suggestion that she was buried under the driveway of one of these men which was dug up however the dig revealed nothing was there and the men were released when gina's body wasn't found her mother nancy ruiz said i know deep in my heart that my baby's still out there so they'd cordoned off an area to do this dig and this is the part where castro came out and literally helped them tape off the area for them to dig so no doubt he was going back into the house either pointing out the window or or kind of yes yeah, it's, it's a common thing in you know looking you know trying to be involved in like ian huntley with the um, the Soham case it, being involved in the searches wanting to kind of rejoice in their kind of the pain of the family but also appear like the hero so on christmas day 2006 having been raped repeatedly by castro amanda berry falls pregnant and gives birth to a baby girl Castro had ordered uh, Michelle Knight to assist in the birth, threatening her with death if the baby did not survive. The birth takes place in a small inflatable swimming pool with the baby needing resuscitation at least once after it had been born. Berry named her daughter Jocelyn. A thing to note here is Michelle actually became pregnant several times from Castro and he would force her to have miscarriages, you know, which, which he has previous with, with Figueroa. Apparently the first time he used a barbell to hit um, Knight in the stomach to force a miscarriage and then afterwards he would blame Michelle Knight for the miscarriage saying he said he said I hated him and that I killed his child that then he punched me in my face saying that it was all my fault so he's forced her to miscarry and then he's gaslighting her saying it was her fault and she did it because she hated him but he, he had done this four to five times to Michelle Knight which yeah as we said it, it seems that he had a real bitterness towards her 
Yeah, it's, it's similarities to that Figueroa, his first uh, partner, because obviously they had, she had multiple miscarriages. He forced, pushed her down the stairs, punched her in the stomach, hit her, you know, with intention to cause a miscarriage. And maybe it's the fact that, you know, it can be argued that a big part of the motivations for this is the fact that Figueroa had gotten away and, and met another man. And he wanted that control of, of not being able to let anyone leave him. Yeah, talking about Figueroa and the other man, he actually got his daughters to pretend or to claim that the other man had been sexually abusing them and they made a report to the police. And Castro, like, he's been able to manipulate his own children yeah. seemingly because they, they were growing up in the household knowing how he was to their mother and, like, you know, abducting them with a young age. But he still was able to manipulate their, his kids in order to, you know, try and get that. And apparently he was an innocent man and he was... Yeah, he was the he was a security guard at the hospital that she had kept in and out of when he was beating her. So he, he eventually was the one to convince her to, to leave yeah. Castro, saying, you know, this is no life. And then Castro straight away can't handle, obviously, jealousy or the fact that someone's left him and not having that control. Starts to, yeah, try and turn his own daughters against this, yeah. this man. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely hideous. So, April 2009, the FBI expands their search for DeJesus and Berry, as well as a third girl, Ashley Summers, another young girl who disappeared aged 14 in 2007 in Cleveland. Initially thought to be a runaway, there was renewed interest in her case as it had been linked to the nearby kidnappings of Berry and DeJesus. Police were looking for a single kidnapper as all disappeared within a few blocks of each other. They did not link these cases to Michelle Knight. That case isn't actually linked to this case. It is just a coincidence, but you can see where the police are kind of thinking this now. Yeah. That it's quite, it's bizarre that these people are missing at the same time. I think the ages were a huge thing. It's 21, 17, 14. Yeah. So it's kind of thinking that she wouldn't be linked within that. And I think Michelle Knight's mother actually dropped the missing persons report after she'd been on there for two years claiming yeah. that you know you're not gonna that, that's her gone which yeah. is you know that's that's yeah so so sad so jocelyn amanda's daughter is, is growing up in this household and um she's you know she's reaching the edge she's four years old apparently a thing that amanda used to do would pretend to walk her to nursery and she'd yeah. walk around the room and then she'd pretend to kind of cross the roads teaching her things like oh you have to stop when it's red the light's red carry on when it's green and then she would take her to nursery and then she would say goodbye and she'd come back and she'd be the teacher and kind of start teaching her things, trying to make it as nice for Jocelyn as possible yeah. in, a, in a horrible situation. The strange thing here is Castro started, you know, really like loving Jocelyn and, you know, he, he would actually would take her out of the house. This is in 2010. He would take her out of the house, introduce her to various relatives as his, either his granddaughter or his, new, or his new girlfriend's daughter. And he'd also take her to a Sunday church services down the street. So this stage, yeah, he's really playing with fire here because he's, he's, you know, he's, br he's bringing his daughter out of the house. But people, the neighbours assumed it was just his granddaughter. He yeah. was playing in the back garden. She was always there. It was just his grand he's just been a good grandfather. Jocelyn is absolutely the key to this case. And if there's any kind of positive moment to the case, it's the fact that when she's born, she gives renewed hope and renewed purpose yeah. to all of the captives. They're all just, you know, creating this environment where, you know, because th this is all Jocelyn knows. She's raised in a prison essentially when she's getting to the age of four though and she's kind of being let out and being allowed to walk around outside she actually she's actually saying to castro you know to unchain them and you know to treat them better and things like that so she was able to see even from that age you know how troubling this whole situation was but yeah it, she definitely did bring kind of a new kind of lease of life to to the girls in the house yeah so it's kind of between eight 
to six years that they've been in varying states of captivity. And at multiple points, all three of them went through and had kind of suicidal thoughts about yeah, know, sure. not, not seeing a way out of this. However, when you know the arrival of Jocelyn very much gives them all a new sense of hope, new sense of purpose. And, and it also at the same time, as Tom mentioned, starts to break down uh, Castro's yeah. guard a little bit. Jocelyn asking Castro to unchain them and stuff like that, that'd be putting him in, in a predicament thinking, making him question some things as well. So the girls as well, they want, wanted to be brave for Jocelyn and they kind of wanted to be there for her and make it as, you know, as comfortable as possible for her as well. So November 2011, Castro's neighbour, Israel Lugo, hears pounding on the doors of Castro's house, which had plastic bags over the windows, and he ends up reporting this to the police. Lugo said that when the officers attended the house, they knocked on the door, received no answer, and then walked around the house, apparently finding nothing out of the ordinary. They then left. There's a lot of kind of near misses here. You could argue, oh, the police weren't being as thorough, but it's so easy to say this when once, you, once we know, obviously, what's inside the house. But yeah, there's another near miss there. So July 2012, um, after receiving a tip from someone at the Southern Ohio Correctional Facility, police searched a vacant lot looking at Berry at West 30th between Wade and Seymour, right around the corner from where Castro's house was. The tip was from prison inmate Robert Walford, who was convicted of murdering a homeless man. He wrote letters to law enforcement telling them that he knows where Amanda's body is. Walford even passed a polygraph test when questioned about this, and he um, showed the police the exact site and where to dig, but uh, nothing was found, and it all turned out that it was all a big hoax. It was just a coincidence that it was right around the corner from where Castro was. Thinking about this, like the families hearing about this, oh, yeah, they, they hear it. They kind of, well, the hope that they could actually get some closure from burying the, their daughter, but then the confirmation that she's dead, but then actually, you know, it's all a hoax that so she could still be alive. It's just an absolute roller coaster for them. So, also July of 2012, another of Castro's neighbours, Elsie Sintron, claims to have contacted police reporting various strange activities at the Castro residence, such as a baby in the attic window, which is a horrifying thought yeah. straight away. Yes, it, it, it was Jocelyn just uh, in the window. And as we said, people thought he was a bachelor. A baby in the window is, is a odd thing to see. Uh, she decided to call the police after her granddaughter said she had seen a naked lady crawling in the backyard of his house with a dog collar on. Yes, yeah, so with that as well, so... The police weren't as thorough with that check. Apparently, residents of the care home also saw three girls in chains, naked with a collar on, being actually being abused in the garden. They called the police and no one came. And shortly after, Castro made his fences even taller and used a tarp to obstruct the view of his garden. That makes that that makes me. I'm not making a conspiracy theory here, but a lot of the times the police, if you're getting that call, yeah. I, th I think fair enough. Sometimes you might be like, okay, you've heard some noises. Some people, I imagine they get a lot of calls every day, which is kind of like, oh, you've heard noises or something. That's a bit strange. Yeah. Hearing the fact there's three naked girls in dog collars being abused and chains in the back garden. From that's multiple people. Yeah, that's something where you're obviously going to go and be very thorough with the check-in there. Yeah. So, I mean, that lines up slightly as well. So over this 10-year period that the girls were held captive, they were allowed outside just two times. And it was kind of disclosed in, in, in books that the girls have, have written as well as in the courts that they were allowed outside in costumes. The 6th of May 2013, Castro leaves the house, accidentally leaving the big inside door open. The girls thought he may be doing this to test them because sometimes he would do this. Yeah. He would leave the door open and then he, he'd wait around the corner and see if they were came around the corner and then he'd pounce on them and then he'd go on to punish them. So they actually would go on to use Jocelyn to kind of get walk around and kind of see if he was there and it turns out he wasn't there. Then Amanda kind of walked down to the, through the door. So it wasn't actually the, it wasn't the front door wasn't open. It was the door, it was the kind of door to the porch, the front door. Yeah. So she opened that, realised the next door was actually locked but she could kind of fit her arm through the door. 
So as she, she reached her arm through the door and started screaming in hopes that someone could hear them. A luckily neighbour, Charles Ramsey, who we mentioned earlier on, hears Berry scream. And on seeing her trying to escape, he helps her get out of the house. So basically he runs to the door. He was eating at McDonald's at the time, apparently. Put down his burger, ran to the door. He said, you know, break the glass through the glass. She couldn't break through the glass. So he said, kick the bottom panel out. So she managed to kick the wooden panel out and he helped her with that. Then he managed to kind of pull her through and then pull Jocelyn through as well. And once she was out, she said, I've been kidnapped. I've been missing for 10 years and I'm here and I'm free now. So they ring 911. Both of them ring 911. They kind of made it clear what happened and people couldn't quite believe what was going on. Yeah, so this is where the now viral uh, clip of Charles Ramsey giving his interview uh, statement around what he had witnessed and what had happened came out with the, the line, you know something is wrong when a pretty little white girl runs into a black man's arms. And there was some kind of controversy around, you know, what actually went down and how she was broken out. There was another eyewitness that claimed to have, I think they're basically, it seems to me that they were fighting over who did the most for her to get her out. Yeah, it's disputed how much Ramsey was involved in it. I guess um, the bigger picture here was actually the fact that they'd been saved. It, no, but yeah, it was, it, they, he got a lot of a kind of uh, notoriety from this. So police started to attend the property, announced themselves walking through the upstairs hallway with guns drawn. After seeing the police through a partially open bedroom door, Knight leapt into an officer's arms, repeating, you saved me, you saved me. To Jesus, it's also found all three women and the child are taken to the nearby Metro Health Medical Centre. Barry and De Jesus are released from the hospital the next day, where Knight was discharged four days later. As we said, it's seemed to be he would pick on Michelle more than the other girls. When Michelle actually got out, she weighed only 38 kilos, with police actually believing from a small stature that she was actually a child and not a 32-year-old woman. Knight has since said, I was I was very sick. I found out that I had a bacterial infection eating away at my stomach. And they told me I only had two days to live, so things weren't looking really bright. Yeah. So yeah, this t- the timing of this was obviously, yeah. They considered putting her into a hospice as well because it was wow. viewed that, you know, it was highly unlikely she would actually make a full recovery just to, to kind of speak for, for the, the extent of her, her condition. Yeah, and you think how Michelle's life has been, that would have been, you know, getting free and then dying a few days afterwards would have been, yeah, just, I mean, so luckily she did go on to make a full recovery from that. So there were also the police radio calls of the time of the discovery as well. So they, they've got Amanda Berry and Jocelyn out on the street, but when they're then going to discover two more girls within the Castro residence, you can hear them on the um, the radio. And initially they, they believe that when they say we've got two more, they're thinking they've got two more dead bodies. Oh. And then also there's one really powerful bit where one of the officers literally entering the scene says this actually might be real. The police know everyone would have heard about, you know, these missing girls. And, you know, it's kind of like one of those things where I think it's etched into our brains, you know, like Madeleine McCann, for example. The idea that someone actually would find this person yeah. and who has been, you know, they've known all these years without knowing them and kind of seeing them, this is actually real. It would be very striking to kind of realise that, we've, you know, we've actually saved these That's girls. Well, the whole case is... is- too impossible to seem real but it happened so later on that day Castro is arrested at a nearby McDonald's along with his two brothers Pedro and Onel so police arrest Ariel and Onel Castro in the car park McDonald's and whilst they were being put in handcuffs Onel asked police if this was about his brother Pedro and gives him the address he was at where police later arrested him the brothers were later released and cleared of any wrongdoing police having determined that Pedro and Onel had no knowledge of their brother's crimes I love how Onel kind of just threw his brother under the bus there basically the brother that that Onel was concerned about was the brother that had a, an outstanding charge for open alcohol but obviously it, it was much much more serious than that so on the 8th of may 2013 castro is charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape initially 
considering everything he does, that sounds fairly timid. But when you go to the extent of the charges, uh, which happens the following month on the 7th of June, 2013. Because, yeah, sorry, it's, it's, it's proved that he's, he's, he's sane of mind and he's, he's ready to stand trial. From the kind of reports, they're quite surprised how normal he seemed which yeah. again is very disconcerting and he wouldn't enter a plea would he he would just stay remained absolutely silent um for for majority of of the of the trial however eventually he would enter a plea the 7th of june 2013 a grand jury indicts castro on 329 total counts including 139 counts of rape 177 counts of kidnapping seven counts of gross sexual imposition three counts of felonious assault two counts of aggravated murder uh, which was for the forced miscarriages that night and one count of possession of criminal tools after reading the charges judge pamela barker asked castro mr castro would you please look at me sir need to make sure you understand what i am saying and this was because throughout the whole sentencing castro had his eyes closed and head lowered castro would then plead not guilty and his bail was set at eight million he would say that the girls were complicit in a, in a lot of the acts and he would say they were, they were doing it for money uh, which you know you can quickly uh prove wrong i just wanted to kind of note the fact that obviously with the amounts of rape i think that was very much helped by the, the notepad being kept with or the, the diary sorry being kept with the amount of times they've been raped as well which was which was helpful evidence for that yeah him pleading not guilty just shows how deluded he was as well 100 percent, 100 percent, and he even tried to say that the girls it was the blame was on the girls because they're the ones that got into the car so 26th of July 2013, Castro agrees to a plea deal, sparing him from the death penalty, pleading guilty to 937 charges, which included kidnapping, rape and murder. Um, on the 1st of August 2013, Castro is sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus an additional 1,000 years. So this is a quote from Castro during his sentencing. I would like to apologise to the victims, Amanda Berry, Gina D'Souza and Michelle Knight. I am truly sorry for what happened. I just hope that they can find it in their hearts to forgive me. I ask God to forgive me. I ask my family and I apologise to my family also for putting them through all this. I want to apologise to the state of Ohio, the city of Cleveland. I just want to apologise to everyone who was touched by these events. You're trying to tick every box with what you're apologising. It's, it's, yeah. In a weird way, it's too open in terms of being like, I want to apologise to Cleveland. He's gone through the court case saying that they essentially wanted it they were complicit and now he's going i'm sorry even phil snidey the fact that he apologized to michelle last in that list as well the other quote that just stuck out like a sore thumb he said i hope they can find it in their hearts to forgive me because we had a lot of harmony in that home so as we mentioned before with some with um the girls being abducted a lot of it had to do with the kind of daughters knowing knowing them um arlene castro said i would have to say i'm really disappointed embarrassed mainly devastated about the whole situation so September the 3rd, 2013, just one month into serving his life sentence, Castro was found hanging from a bedsheet in his prison cell. He was 53 at the time of his death and uh, prison staff were supposed to be kind of performing routine because he was on suicide watch yeah. kind of every 13 minutes checking in on him. It was, it was revealed that obviously certain checks had been missed. They attempted to perform CPR on him. However, this was unsuccessful and he was uh, immediately taken to Ohio State University Wex a medical center where he was pronounced dead shortly after i think what that is he he's really fought there to be not given the death penalty yeah he wants it on his terms and his terms it was kind of speculated it could have been an accident from an asphyxi asphyxi oh, okay. uh master asphyxi masturbation that's not what you say uh, Ex- but dan what is it again what do you do <laughs> asphyxi wank 
That's the one. That's the one. But it was believed because he had these kind of pictures of his family members in front of him, a Bible next to him. It was kind of ruled out afterwards because they felt like it was more kind of ritual, um, like more of a ritual for him actually, you know, asking for forgiveness and, and killing himself. Yeah, and I mean, on the on the fact that there was a lot of controversy around uh, guards not performing the correct checks. Although he had been on suicide watch, he was not on suicide watch at the exact time of his death, but he had been subjected to routine checks every 30 minutes due to the notoriety he had in the prison. Mm. Two guards were found to have not completed those particular uh, checks at the time, um, but they stood by their ruling of, um, of suicide. So a little bit more on Michelle Knight. The injuries she actually suffered at the hands of Castro left her unable to have children, which is horrible. She would, she would go on to change her name to Lily Rosely and would go on to marry a mutual friend on Facebook. So a, lot, a bit more of a lighter note there for, for Michelle. And you can only imagine how guilty um, Castro's daughters felt throughout all of this. There's lots of interviews with them now, kind of saying that how they obviously had no idea how guilty they felt. They're very articulate with how they spoke. You can see it's all very gen- genuine, but the, yeah, their father putting them in that position, obviously abducting their, some of their best friends, and you know, it's just so, so messed up with how he kind of used everyone and, and manipulated everyone for what he wanted. Yeah, there was one part as well where he had at one point all three of the girls in the, the garage of the house. He had conditioned them so much to the point where he took all the gags out of their mouth and said, look, scream, there's a busy street outside, scream. And they were all so terrified of him, despite mm-hmm. the fact that they could see people out on the street, that they all refused, all refused to scream. So he'd completely manipulated him. The easy comparison is Fritzel. We've done an episode on yep. Joseph Fritzel. The differences, though, and obviously I'm not trying to paint Fritzel as any kind of saint here, but <laughs> I'm glad. Yeah. Um, but he had no like emergency contingency plan if something happened to him and the yeah, girls would be which has been speculated with with, with the fritz one that that was just what he said but yeah that, that's the thing uh, that's i think that's one of his daughters was saying as well what was his game plan here because yeah. he's, he's an older guy if he died they would have all just starved to death and yeah yeah horrible. yeah fritzel obviously gave them slightly more support during childbirth not a massive amount more support there was no kind of elaborate dungeon never thought it'd be possible for because that case was hard to cover yeah, yeah but i never thought it'd be possible for someone to just completely take that to a new a new depth it's 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 hideous yeah they're both very dark in their own kind of ways there we mentioned earlier on the psychic sylvia brown surprise sylvia brown was wrong she said to amanda berry's mother that her daughter was dead saying she's not alive honey and she's in water and i basically wanted to kind of i wanted to check and see that obviously she must apologize for saying such a, a stupid thing and being completely yeah. wrong about it but she, she um, refused to comment on the whole thing and this wasn't the first time she'd done this apparently in 2003 brown incorrectly told the parents of missing teen sean hornbeck that their son was dead and his body could be found somewhere near two jagged boulders four years later hornbeck was found alive <laughs> so um awful person yeah you're abusing vulnerable people that are at a time of need yeah so not a fan no, no, no. And if you're a psychic, what am I thinking about you now? Yeah. How about that? She's probably getting it wrong. He loves me. <laughs> so a little bit more just uh, before we we, uh, we go into some, some lighter relief. It's widely believed that having uh, his marriage with Figueroa having broken down, that Castro told his prisoners that Berry was his new wife and that he began raping Knight and De Jesus in the backyard rather than inside the house in front of his new wife. The other element is obviously that he allowed 
Barry to go through with the pregnancy mm. and, and have the baby, whereas with, with Michelle, obviously, he forced miscarriages multiple times. Yeah. Um, his initial intention was to leave the newborn Jocelyn on the steps of a church after she was born. But at the time of birth, he basically manifested excitement about becoming a father again, uh, albeit in those conditions. Um, that's and, similar, like, as you compared with Fritzl, it's kind yeah. of he, that's the child actually in both cases are uh, the thing that kind of changed this, didn't it? Yeah. Like, yeah. And he, and the love for the child and thinking, uh, they're thinking to themselves they've got a family they're making there, yeah. which kept them going. Yeah, horrible. And another interesting thing is that Berry named the girl uh, Jocelyn, which was in defiance of Castro's insistence that she had a Spanish name. So as part of that particular plea bargain, Castro's house uh, where he had lived and held the, the women captive was demolished on the 7th of June 2013. And interestingly, Michelle Knight was present and actually handed out yellow balloons to spectators, which she said represented missing children. The balloons were released before De Jesus's aunt began the demolition by the swing of a crane. But that felt bloody good. According to WKYC sources, Castro did not have an exit plan. So we discussed that, you know, if something happened to Castro, what would happen to his captives? They believe that Castro felt he would eventually be caught and eventually have to turn himself over. He would refer to himself as cold-blooded and a sex addict uh, and someone that was abused in his childhood as, as his reasonings for conducting his crimes. Police did find a suicide note in his home in which he discussed the abductions and wrote that his money and possessions should be given to the kidnapped women if he were ever caught. Uh, Amanda Berry was actually brought onto stage at Roverfest in Cleveland in 2013 by Nelly during his set, um, waving wow. to the crowd and getting everyone to cheer. And like, I, th- I think she was very into her music. Um, and yeah, that was, that was a nice little. Uh, yeah, Castro would have hated that because apparently, and this goes back, this goes back to his him not letting his wife watch certain television programs. Mm. Apparently, with the girls, although he let the girls watch TV, if he ever found them listening to black music or watching black TV shows, mm. he would viciously beat them. So there's an element of, uh, of of racism to 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 Castro as well. So he would have he would have not been a fan of Nelly, I and, imagine. And talking about music, but he would have been a fan probably of this person tonight. As you said, years that she spent trapped in a room with the Jesus. Adele Skyfall, they used to sing that together when they were down and out and it kind of would cheer them up. He would occasionally, to go back to some of the more captive elements, he would occasionally uh, bring the girls fast food as a treat. So he would spend a lot of his time in McDonald's and his house. If you look at photos, it looked like a hoarder's kind of house. And yeah. that was often the excuse he gave us. Oh, I lock the rooms because they're a mess and I don't want people going in them. But he had food wrappers, old moldy food. He didn't look after himself, um, wasn't very hygienic. And obviously he would force that on- onto the girls as well when he would, would live this double life. So McDonald's has got a fair few mentions in this case. It ha- absolutely has. Absolutely. You're welcome, Ronald. Just to kind of emphasise how close to home this all was, the three girls were taken from 106th Street, 105th Street and 110th Street. So that's within five blocks of one another, all within a two-year period. Castro's home was visited twice by police in investigating this and, and for the complaints that were raised around loud noises and public disturbances, but again, no action was taken. There were a lot of red flags, I think, as we said, that were that were missed on, on Castro. Yeah, and a lot of the neighbours felt guilt afterwards for not discovering this or reporting this, but, you know, it's one of those things he... It's so easy just to feel this way or blame yourself after the fact, but, yeah, I think we can just take some lesson the fact that he's no longer around and the girls are. Um, so we're moving on to a bit that I know Ben enjoys... I've uh, gone steady this week. You're, st- you're going steady this week. Are you? I'll let you go first. I think you're going to like mine. I really hope you haven't got the same as me. But So I've got two. A bit nervous about them. So my first one is he looks like a less innocent 
Richard Attenborough from Jurassic Park. Then welcome to Jurassic Park, man. Just because he's got a beard and glasses. And glasses. Okay. Dan. No. No. Look. No. Look at these two photos. No. No. Okay. Well, my better one. I'm sorry. No. My better one, slightly more niche. He looks like Gale from Breaking Bad. Good. Or in Flight of the Concords guy. Oh yeah, he is. Yeah, that, that's that's the better out of the two. So I've gone for an old one that I saw a lot of pictures of him of. I think he looks a bit like Parasite the Wrestler when when they went to just that one night in that particular hat. I think there's a bit of similarity there. That's pretty good. So that was the case of Ariel Castro, the Cleveland monster. As always, thank you so much for choosing to watch or listen to our podcast. We really, really appreciate it for all the new subscribers, followers, uh, people that have been giving us shout outs, people that are telling their friends about us, people that are supporting the show. We really, really appreciate it. And, um, you know, it means a lot that you, 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 you're on this little journey with us. If you guys are listening to us on Spotify or iTunes, please give us a follow or review on there. It really does help kind of more people find us. And if you're interested in getting some I Could Murder a Podcast merch, you like stickers, if you like a cup of coffee, if you like a hat because you're a little bit sunny and you, the, you want some shade in your eyes, why not go to our store and get some merch from there? We really do appreciate the support. And we also have a Patreon where we do minisodes where you guys vote and pick up for these episodes. Yeah, yeah. And, and any support goes directly into the channel. We really do appreciate it. Like I said, if you can't wait until uh, next week's episode, then there's 40-odd other episodes on patreon for you all waiting to be uh waiting to be binged and uh binged uh, and, and binged they shall be and like we always say we say this all the time keep doing what you're doing less um well unless you're riding around a school bus looking absolutely u-turns bell and psychics until next time guys see you later bye-bye You have been listening to I Could Murder a Podcast, written and presented by Tom Norris and Ben Carter. Additional voiceover by Corey Johnson. Additional research and timelines written by Danielle St. Romain. Produced and mixed by Dan Lambert of Boston Sound. Artwork and animation by Phil Witten. Theme song by Alfie Indra. If you've enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Just search at Could Murder a Pod. For additional and exclusive content, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Could Murder a Pod. And don't forget to tell all of your friends. I Could Murder a Podcast is proudly part of the ACAST Creator Network. For hundreds of extra minisodes and other content, along with our private Discord server and live Q&As, exclusive merch and much more, consider subscribing to icmap.co.uk.